Good to be with you all. Um, excited to open God's Word with you today. Um, we are continuing our series through the book of Matthew, and we have a beautiful passage before us today. Um, so I'm excited to jump in with you. Before we do, let me pray for us, uh, because I need God's help. I think we all need God's help, so let's pray. Lord, uh, you say the one on whom you look is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at your word. Lord, help us to submit ourselves, all of us, all of our, all of ourselves, mind and soul, to your word. And God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a question for you. Have you ever wondered if you were too far gone for Jesus to reach you? Have you ever wondered if you were too far gone for Jesus to reach you? Have you ever wondered if you were the type of person that Jesus would rather keep at a distance? Maybe you can remember a time in your life when your sin felt heavy, your sin felt gross, to the point that you wondered, how could Jesus ever have mercy enough to forgive me? For some, I wonder if the shame of your past haunts you. Maybe the memories of your past fill you with pain and regret. And you wonder, did Jesus really come for people like me with all of my mess, all of my baggage, all of my shame. Maybe you don't even know Jesus yet. You are on the outside looking in, and you might say, yeah, Jesus might work for you, this group of people in there. But for me, I'm not so sure. I have my doubts. Have you ever wondered if Jesus, have you ever wondered if you were too far gone for Jesus to reach you? I pray that today God's word will put those worries and those suspicions to rest. In our text today, I want us to see three things. There'll be three stopping points along our text. We'll see a great tension, a great faith, and ultimately a great Savior. So let's jump right in. Matthew 15, starting in verse 21. The first two verses we read, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So right out of the gate, let's pause there. Right out of the gate, Matthew gives us the where and the who. So where is Jesus going? Jesus is going to this district of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, He's leaving the city of Gennesaret, where he argued with the Pharisees. Now he's in Tyre and Sidon, this this region, a a notoriously wicked Gentile cities. These were notoriously wicked Gentile cities, bitter enemies of Israel. 
Tyre and Sidon were often condemned by Old Testament prophets for their institution of Baal worship. And this is where Jesus withdraws. This is where Jesus is headed. So, that's the where, then the who. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out. First, what do we know about this woman? Well, obviously she's a woman. And any respectable Jewish rabbi wouldn't talk to a woman. So there's one strike against her. Mark tells us this woman is a Syrophoenician woman. Syrophoenician by birth, which leads us to think she's a Greek-speaking Syrian woman. This woman is a Gentile, but not just a Gentile. She's a Canaanite. Canaanites were historic enemies of Israel. Back in Genesis 9, Noah declares, Cursed be Canaan. In the book of Joshua, you read about the Israelites were to devote the Canaanites to destruction. And you go to the end of the Old Testament in Zechariah, and we read this, And there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. So, in many ways, we see that this woman is a Gentile, but she's not just a, a Gentile. She seems to be a Gentile of Gentiles. If there ever was a Gentile in the flesh, one who was separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, a stranger to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world, it was this woman. Matthew quickly gives us these details of the where and the who to tell us this. She's an outsider. She's one of them. She's not one of us. And she bursts into this house where Jesus has come with his disciples. Bursts into the house begging Jesus for mercy to heal her daughter. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Her daughter is demon-possessed. How, how awful. How terrifying this must have been as a mom. This would have likely brought so much physical suffering and torment to her daughter. The mother is desperate. She no doubt has tried many other ways to help her daughter and found none. And now she hears that Jesus has come to her town. Jesus' fame would have certainly preceded him. Numerous times in Matthew's gospel, we read that Jesus' fame was spread throughout all the region. His miracles, the news of his miracles spread far and wide. And now he's here. She pleads for mercy. And what is Jesus' response? Verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. But Jesus appears to be indifferent right out of the gate. Uh, Jesus' silence, though, doesn't silence this woman. She continues to cry out. Mark, in his account of this, indicates that her begging was a persistent begging. Over and over again she went. 
Have mercy on me, son of David. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Again and again she went. The disciples jump in at this point. Send her away. She's crying out after us. The disciples show their frustration with this woman. You know, this is probably becoming a scene now. It's loud. She keeps begging Jesus for mercy. And the disciples likely even reveal their ethnocentric way of thinking. They know who this woman is. And they are quick to ask Jesus to send her away. Then Jesus seems to agree with them. He seems to agree with his disciples, almost taking their side. Verse 24, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Essentially saying, I haven't come for you. Still, undeterred, she then kneels at the feet of Jesus and simply pleads, Lord, help me. And then Jesus answers in verse 26. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. In Mark's account, he adds the word first. Mark says, let the children be fed first. Maybe indicating a priority of timing. But Jesus says it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Jesus is saying, my mission is to Israel. I'm Israel's Messiah. I'm here for the children, not for the dogs. I'm here for the Jews, not for the Gentiles. This is a great tension in this text. Can this unclean outsider... This woman, a Gentile of Gentiles, find mercy at the feet of Jesus. What would Jesus ultimately do for this woman who is pleading for his mercy? What would he do? It appears that he is turning her down and in a pretty harsh way. How do we rightly understand what Jesus is doing here? Knowing the character and the heart of Jesus... Doesn't the way he's talking with this woman just seem so out of character for him? Doesn't it feel so out of step with who we know Jesus to be? Where is my Lord Jesus and what have you done with him? At first glance, it's startling to see Jesus' lack of sensitivity to this woman. So what can we make of this? I won't be able to unpack every nuance there needs to be unpacked for this. But I believe Jesus knew what he was doing every step of the way. He was testing this woman's faith. This was a divinely appointed meeting. Jesus is speaking some pretty harsh things. We cannot get away from that. It makes you squirm a little bit. He's speaking some pretty harsh things but for a very specific purpose. Jesus is interacting with this woman in such a way that her faith is drawn out. Her faith is overcoming obstacles. Obstacles, even the ones that Jesus himself puts up. And her faith is ultimately put on display for all to see. 
Jesus is drawing out this desperate mother's great faith. So the tension, can an unclean outsider find mercy at the feet of Jesus? What will Jesus do for this marginalized woman? This great tension leads us to the second stopping point here, a great faith. Verses 27 and 28. She said, in response to Jesus, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. What a response to Jesus. I can hear the woman, in effect, saying, Yes, yes, you are called to the house of Israel first, but yet, here you are, talking to me. I know I don't deserve your mercy. I know I'm but a lowly Gentile dog, but yet here are you in front of me, talking with me, and I know who you are. I know what you can do. I'll take anything that you give, even the crumbs, and that will be enough. What great faith indeed. Now, I cannot imagine Jesus just not beaming with a smile at this woman's response. Oh, woman, great is your faith. This is what he was after. He wanted to show his disciples, particularly his disciples, and everyone else in the room, this woman's great faith. She responds in great faith. Jesus heals her daughter instantly. He doesn't even need to say a word. It was done. Notice the difference between this woman's faith and the lack of faith of the scribes and Pharisees that we saw earlier in chapter 15. The context of this account is pretty significant. There's a juxtaposition here. The Pharisees had clean hands and dirty hearts. This woman had dirty hands. Oh, she was definitely eating food with unwashed hands. And yet her heart was exactly where Jesus wanted it to be. This woman does not measure up to the Pharisees' standards. She is unclean defiled, dirty, a Gentile sinner, and yet she has all the qualities that Jesus values. She has the faith that Jesus accepts and the faith that the Pharisees lack. So, what is so great about this woman's faith? What's so great about it? Jesus says, great faith. Great faith. Well, I see three things here that characterize her faith. Her faith was persistent. At every turn, she could not be turned down. Silence didn't silence her. Knowing her lineage as a Gentile, that wasn't going to stop her. She wouldn't relent even in the face of insults. She saw Jesus for who he truly was and knew what he could do. 
this woman spent untiring energy in pursuit of what she needed most from Jesus. Her faith was persistent. Her faith was also humble. She's not concerned with protecting her dignity. That's very clear. She knows she doesn't have dignity. She freely admits that she is as low on the important scale as she could possibly be. She's not too proud to beg for mercy in a place she knows she's not even wanted. She kneels in the dirt at the feet of Jesus. Her faith was humble. What a beautiful picture of humble faith. This is the kind of faith that we would do well to imitate. This is the kind of faith that Jesus delights in. Clinging to nothing else but his mercy for undeserving sinners. Her faith was persistent. Her faith was humble. Her faith was ultimately in the right person. She is confident in who she was talking to. She says, have mercy on me, son of David. She knows Jesus' true identity. It's very significant that she calls him son of David. She knew Jesus was Israel's Messiah. She also knew Jesus was her Messiah. When others wondered, could this be the son of David? The long-awaited Messiah? This woman answers with a resounding yes. She believed that he was able and willing to heal her daughter. She believed that the promises of God find their yes in this man. The covenant promises made through Abraham that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And the promises made through David that there would be a king to reign on his throne forever are now being realized in Jesus Christ. And with this simple declaration... O Lord, son of David, we see that this woman gets it. She knows Jesus' true identity. Her faith is in the right person. Crumbs are not enough to satisfy anyone. But her great faith in the person of Jesus led her to accept the crumbs that he had for her. And she knew that that would be enough. So little would accomplish so much for her. Her faith rested in the right person, Jesus Christ, our great Savior. So we saw a great tension. What would Jesus do with this marginalized woman? This tension that leads to this revealing of this woman's great faith. And her great faith was ultimately in a great Savior. A great Savior. Verses 29 through 39. Jesus leaves the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he travels somewhere beside the Sea of Galilee. Uh, in Mark's account, he tells us that he goes to the Decapolis. Uh, which is a region of... Uh, the, the region of the Decapolis, which is an area of ten cities that were known for being inhabited mostly by Gentiles. Some Jewish people, mostly Gentiles. Jesus finds a secluded place in the mountains and, as always happens, again, crowds find him. 
and verse 30, bringing with him the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. We see here a great Savior, and this great Savior is a Savior who heals. Here we see Jesus is a healing Savior. These people were brought to his feet. That's the same place where the Canaanite woman found herself, kneeling at the feet of Jesus. There's no better place to find ourselves than at the feet of Jesus. Jesus spent three days healing people, maybe teaching, intermixed with healing. And they were in wonder, in wonder, and they glorified the God of Israel. Jesus is a Savior who heals. And next, this great Savior is a Savior who nourishes. Look at verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, He took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. Now the crowds then hung out with Jesus for about three days. They hung with him for three days. They ran out of food And they were hungry. Jesus shows that he is a savior who nourishes. He says, I have compassion on the crowds. I'm unwilling to send them away hungry. Jesus' unwillingness to send the crowd away really contrasts how quickly the disciples were willing to send the Canaanite woman away. Just the first sign of frustration. Get her out of here. Jesus, thousands of people. I'm unwilling. We have a Savior who nourishes his people. Jesus' disciples don't really get what's going on here. Shocker, right? Like, didn't this happen just like a week ago? Jesus fed 5,000 people, and now he's doing it again. How, How long has it been? Maybe a few days, maybe a week. They're stuck in thinking in terms of human possibilities. How are we to get this food for so great a crowd? They show their little faith. Now, you might notice there are a a lot of similarities between the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. So what's the purpose of this account? They're almost exactly the same, right? 
Well, I think Matthew's intention of having this account recorded like this is twofold. First, to account for what really happened. This is not a a made-up event that he thinks will just kind of play well in, in this gospel, right? This really happened. This is something that Jesus actually did, just like he did for the 5,000. But secondly, I do think Matthew's intention is to show us that this real event has some symbolism to it and reveals a greater purpose for Jesus' ministry. In the first feeding of the 5,000, Jesus showed that he is the bread of life to Israel. And now that Jesus is in Gentile country, the feeding of the 4,000 shows that Jesus is the bread of life to the nations. The Gospel of Matthew really doesn't have a lot of symbolism to it. It's not heavy laden symbolism, maybe like the book of Revelation might be. So we don't need to read extraordinarily into this, but I think it would be unwise to overlook the symbolism that Matthew intends here. Commentator uh, Michael Green says this, It is fascinating, perhaps highly symbolic, that whereas 12 basketfuls were taken up after the feeding of the 5,000, symbolizing Jesus' mission uh, to feed the 12 tribes of Israel, seven basketfuls were taken up after the Gentile feeding of the 4,000, and seven is the number of completeness. It may fittingly symbolize meeting the needs of the entire world. All ate and were satisfied. We don't want to miss that this purpose, this account in Matthew's gospel. The same miracle that Jesus displayed for the people of Israel, he is now displaying for the nations, for the Gentiles, for outsiders, for the unclean, for those who are marginalized. So Jesus is a Savior who heals, he is a Savior who nourishes, and he is a Savior for all people. Jesus, feeding the 4,000, tells us that Gentiles will share in the children's bread. The fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that in him all the families of the earth will be blessed is being realized now in the person and in the mission of Jesus Christ. As uh, commentator Doug O'Donnell has helpfully put it, Jesus is showing the Great Commission before he commands it. I think that's really helpful because that's exactly what he's doing. We start in Matthew, Matthew 1 1, with Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is Israel's Messiah, and we end in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Jesus is going to the nations, extending his mercy, extending his grace, his compassion, his forgiveness to all who will come to him in faith. Jesus is a savior for all people. The gospel is good news, not just for a select group of people, but for the whole world. Romans 1.16, the 
The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Galatians 3, in Christ Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Jesus is a savior for all people. But you have to come to him in faith. You come to him in humble, repentant faith. But since he is a savior for all people, that includes you. That means you. So if you believe that your sin is too great to keep you from Jesus, or you think that your past is too dark, that Jesus wouldn't want you, that he would rather keep you at arm's length, Look no further than the gospel. You should look no further than the gospel. Jesus lived a perfect life in your stead. He died the death you deserve to die. He bore the wrath of God that we rightly deserved. And then he rose again from the dead, proving that his sacrifice was sufficient for the worst of sinners. Today we've seen in Matthew 15 a great tension that leads to a great faith that shows us a great Savior. And he's a Savior for all who will come to him in faith. All who will come to him in faith. Are you too far gone for Jesus to reach you? No, you are not. Are you the type of person that Jesus would rather keep at a distance? No, you are not. He goes to the outsiders and he lavishes them with his love and his grace and mercy. He welcomes all who come to him in faith. He will never turn you away. The truth is we were all God's enemies like the Canaanite woman. We were all at one time the sons of disobedience, doing evil deeds without God, without hope in this world. But listen to Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus laid down his life for his enemies. 
we have been forgiven and reconciled in the gospel. Our sin has been atoned for and we have been brought near. This is the good news. Dear saints, let's rejoice in this good news today. Jesus welcomes all who come to him in faith. He goes to the outsider. He will never turn you away.